You're listening to Gypsit Between the Lines, where we have real discussions about real issues in public safety. In Episode 5, Part 1, we're joined by Nikki and Jenny from the Georgia Commission on Family Violence. We go in-depth about all aspects of family violence, stalking, and some tips on how to handle these cases for law enforcement. I'm Vanessa Westmoreland with Gypstick. And I'm Megan Etheridge with Gypstick. And today we're with Nikki and Jenny from the Georgia Commission on Family Violence. How are y'all doing today? Great. Great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for coming. Did y'all just want, each of you want to just give a little background about yourself? It doesn't have to be very detailed. Sure. You want to go first? Sure. Yes. So my name is Jenny Asman. I am the program manager at the Georgia Commission on Family Violence. I've been in that role for about three years. And before that, I worked on the Georgia Domestic Violence Fatality Review Project at the commission. And I'm Nikki Lameshka. I'm currently the Fatality Review Coordinator at the commission. And I've been here since 2016. But before that, I came from 12 years of direct service as a legal advocate at a domestic violence program. And prior to that, in Child Protective Services. Okay, so we have a lot of information to cover today because y'all brought us a lot, and we're excited to have you here. The first one we're going to go over is, can you tell us what the definition of family violence is in Georgia? Yeah, so in Georgia, a crime is considered to be family violence based on the relationship of the parties involved and the type of crime that's committed. So in OCGA 1913-1, family violence is clearly defined as the occurrence of one of the following acts could be battery, simple battery, simple assault, assault, stalking, criminal damage to property, unlawful restraint, criminal trespass, or any felony between one of the following relationships, past or present spouses, persons who are parents of the same child, parents and children, step-parents and step-children, foster parents and foster children, or other persons living or formally living in the same household. So it's a pretty broad catch-all for a lot of different types of relationships. But typically, we discuss domestic violence and family violence in a more sort of behavioral definition. Mm -hmm. So the Office of Violence Against Women defines domestic violence as a pattern of abusive behaviors in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over another intimate partner. So that's more of what what we're seeing and really focuses more on the dynamics and behaviors that are happening within those relationships. So on that note, are women really the more common victims of domestic violence? Or if we're talking about you know, men or women in same-sex relationships, are they, do they have the same statistics? Yeah, so I really want to emphasize here that the prevalence of domestic violence really does cut across all genders, classes, races, religions, and sexual orientations. However, yes, studies show that domestic violence does happen at higher rates with men committing domestic violence against women. And, you know, to pull some stats out, according to the Bureau of Justice, women account for about 85% of victims of intimate partner violence, and men account for the remaining 15%. And so about four and five victims of intimate partner violence are women. And when we look at sexual orientation and around what happens in same-sex relationships is the research says that it's happening at the same rate. And so this is happening, you know, across our communities and all different sorts of relationships. And you talked a little bit about statistics, but in Georgia and national surveys, how accurate do you believe the statistics are? Yeah, so when we look at statistics and probably any statistics that you've heard, um, we can safely assume that those are undercounts and that it's not really capturing the full scope of domestic violence happening nationally or in our state. And there's a couple reasons for that. 
as we all know, domestic violence is still very much considered a private family issue. Mm -hmm. And so with this type of research and stats that are gathered, folks aren't always coming uh, to the table to Mm self-identify as a victim of domestic violence. That can be because they have shame or feel guilt around that, or they might not even recognize that what their experience in their relationships is domestic Mm -hmm. violence. Another thing that can contribute to the undercount around domestic violence is that researchers aren't asking the questions around some of the more sort of insidious forms of abuse or that aren't physical violence. And so they're not capturing psychological abuse or aggression, stalking, uh, Mm -hmm. teen dating violence statistics, or really capturing sort of what's happening with children who are exposed to domestic violence in the home. So yeah, we can safely assume all of the statistics that we see around domestic violence are under counts. Even nationally, some of the numbers that we see, every state has their own definition of what family violence or domestic violence is and different things regarding teen dating violence and other forms of intimate partner violence, which is typically what we focus our data collection Mm -hmm. on is intimate partner relationships and not sort of the brother, sister or sorority sister or fraternity brothers that all may be living in the same Mm -hmm. household, because really the dynamics in those circumstances look a lot different. So I think all of that combined sort of affects what we, you know, how we feel about the numbers that we see. And how can officers help with reporting that would maybe give us a more true picture of the statistics? Yeah, so Nikki and I, in preparation for the podcast today, we pulled some information from GBI around family violence incident reports in the state of Georgia. And so the most recent year they've reported is in 2017, where we see that officers responded to 61,824 family violence incidents in our state uh, in, our, in our state in 2017. That's a while. That's and still a large number, even though we know that they're not all reported. Exactly. Right. So if that's an undercount, right, the scope of this issue in Georgia is, is huge. And so when we talk about how law enforcement can help us get a, a better understanding and grasp on what's happening in our state, I think making sure that those family violence incident reports are being filled out when they're responding to a family violence call is really important. We have a new data project at our agency where we're specifically pulling GBI data and data from other agencies across our state. So we're taking a look at what those stats say, and we're looking closely at what's being submitted by law enforcement agencies. So we want to make sure at every call, whether there's an arrest or not, that officers are filling out that report, um, submitting it to their supervisors, and making sure it's getting funneled up to GBI so we can analyze that data. And you said earlier something about the Georgia Fatality Review. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so um, so that is a project that I've been working on since I've been at the commission. And, and really what the fatality, domestic violence fatality review is about is understanding where gaps in our systems, how we respond to the problem of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to ultimately learn from the worst case scenarios. So when we look at cases, we're not necessarily, it's not like an investigation would be in terms of trying to determine what happened in the fatal incident. That's already been done by law enforcement. Mm-hmm, right. What we're trying to do is typically we focus on the five years that led up to that fatal incident, and we're looking for what systems were involved, how did they respond, were there, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So when we look back, can we see any red flags, any indicators um, that we so may have missed? When you say systems, you mean defects, the school, if Absolutely. it's a child, or even our entire community. General. So law enforcement, prosecution, social services, domestic violence programs, churches. churches. Yeah. I New mean, programs. non non-traditional responders are part of this too, right? So faith communities, schools, all of the places where, you know, the victims and perpetrators are living in our communities and they're mm-hmm. intersecting with a ton of different people. So who picked up on the information? Because what we typically find is 
A lot of people knew a lot of things, but they only knew little breadcrumbs, right? They, they don't have the entire picture. So when we look back at these cases and we kind of see who knew what and who knew what to do, you know, how mm-hmm. to do something about it, we learn about where we're sort of having gaps in how our systems And that would be respond. mandated reporters, right? Not just mandated reporters, any person that is Mm -hmm. intersecting. So, for example, you brought up faith community. We could see that maybe people in the the church community were aware of aspects of the abuse, but they didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how to keep the victim safe or how to hold the offender accountable. So, So then that helps sort of drive for us in terms of looking at these circumstances, how do we make recommendations so that we get better at that? So how do we develop training for church communities, for example, to go in there and talk about how to address this issue when it comes up? Because we know it comes up. Mm -hmm. Right. So fatality review is really about learning from those worst case scenarios and trying to develop ways that we can get better so that we can change the ending for the next victim so that this, the other people who are experiencing this domestic violence, they don't suffer a similar fate, if that makes sense. So, and is the fatality review, is that mandated by law that this happens? So our project is a little bit different than child fatality mm-hmm. review, which is another well-known fatality review in the state. That is mandated by law. Our project is voluntary. So this is driven by communities who want to learn more about a tragedy that's occurred and do better. The project ran for 15 years. We just issued our final report of the project as it was been, because as Jenny mentioned, we're starting up some new ways of looking at domestic violence data. So we closed out the way it had been done. But in that 15-year period, we had almost 900 stakeholders, so law enforcement, defects, all those people Mm -hmm. we just mentioned all coming together to evaluate these cases in that period. So we had a lot of buy-in from a lot of a lot of people throughout the state. Yeah. How are they reporting that to you? The different ones like the DFACs and the religious organizations, how are they sending Mm -hmm. that to you? So what we did in that in those circumstances where we're doing these reviews is we would take um, we would sort of an assemble a chronology of every bit of information that we could find out pretty much, again, typically focused on that five-year period that Mm -hmm. led up to the fatal incident. So we would put it together in a timeline. We'd get all the public records that we could get our hands on, and we would put it all together. Then we would assemble a team uh, representative of all the different agencies and sort of, you know, community partners, and we would come together and talk about these cases. We would evaluate everything, and that's how we would sort of drive the conversation around what did we know? What should we have known? What could we have done better if this, you know, knowing the end result and uh, sort of use that to formulate recommendations for statewide implementation? Okay. So in there, did you ever mention the full annual family violence death rate? Is that something that's mentioned in there as well? We do talk about that. And I would say, you know, we look at collecting information about these fatal incidents in a lot of different ways. We did not review, let me say this, we did not review every case that came up. Unfortunately, we have too many cases to do that level of in-depth review. We know that we have about an average of 140 domestic violence-related deaths per year over the last five years, at least. And that rate has slightly gone up over the last five years before that. So we have about 140 deaths a year. In last year, we were aware of 143 domestic violence deaths. The year before that, 164. Now, I think those numbers will adjust a little bit. They're going to go up. They won't go down as we determine more and more about cases and that they were, in fact, domestic violence related. Because sometimes things like a car crash or 
something else mm-hmm. that seems very unrelated to domestic violence turns out that it was, right? right? Yeah. They were fleeing abuse and got into a crash or something similar. So those numbers change a little bit over time. But those numbers that we look at, we include numbers for the primary intimate partner violence victim, secondary victims like children, family members, bystanders, and law enforcement responders who are sometimes killed in these incidents, as well as the deaths of perpetrators. And where does that rank Georgia nationally? nationally? Yeah, so good question. We we most recently ranked 25th in the nation for the rate at which men kill women. I will say, though, that's about the lowest that we have ever been, to the best of my recollection. And I wish I could say that that's because we were doing so much better. Honestly, I'll say I think that was a little bit of a fluke um, and that, sadly, I think we're going to be back up. Typically, we find ourselves within the top 10 of that number. Wow. Yeah. Mm, I didn't know that. So when we're talking about these and, you know, we in public safety and even your work, it's driven by numbers a lot of times. The numbers and like we just said, that's we didn't know that we had been ranked 10th in the nation before and just having 140 domestic violence deaths last year is a lot. But how can officers or any first responder that's responding to a call, how can they help stop domestic violence or what can they do to, I guess, stop the problem? Yeah, so it can feel overwhelming and it can feel like how can we intervene to help help victims of domestic violence? And what we can do is we can turn to research to look at lethality indicators that signal to us that violence in that relationship has escalating to a point where the victim is at an increased risk for experiencing violence. And so a few that are coming to mind that you might be aware of or might be new information for you are an increase in the severity or frequency of physical violence in the past year. Uh, The presence of a firearm or the use of Mm -hmm. a firearm in threatening the victim. So introducing a firearm into the relationship and making it known that that could be used against the victim. Any sort of recent separation can signal an increase in lethality. So moving out of the house, uh, separating, filing for divorce, breaking up, those can all be signals that the violence can escalate in the relationship. Any sort of threats to kill her or her children, family members, or pets, attempts or threats of suicide, attempts to strangle or choke the victim shows that we, she's at an increased risk of being killed. Any sort of use of illegal drugs or abuse of alcohol, while that doesn't cause domestic mm-hmm. violence, it can definitely increase the severity uh, of, of domestic violence. For I have a question. For yeah. the attempts mm-hmm. for suicide, is that the victim or the offender? The attempts of suicide is for the perpetrator, the abuser. Okay. Yeah. But certainly if, if we see a victim mm-hmm. who is trying to take their own life, we should always be asking what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, here, so right? it can be on both ends. It, yeah, it's likely an indicator of a larger problem. And, and also with substance abuse, you know, we mentioned that's an indicator of increased risk if you see a perpetrator who's using drugs or alcohol. But also we know a lot of victims who are seeing increased rates of abuse or, you know, increased severity. Yeah, they're using that to dull the pain, right, to get through the day as a way mm-hmm. of sort of coping with what's going on. So even if that's not necessarily an indicator of increased risk of a lethal incident, It's certainly an indicator of a problem that needs to be asked about. And we know perpetrators are going to say they're going to use that as a tool to blame her, right, for the cause of the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, she's a drunk, she's on her, you know, whatever. I mean, any officer in the state of Georgia who has responded to domestic violence has about 10 to 150 excuses that they've heard as soon as they hit that driveway. Mm -hmm. And amongst them are always, she's a drunk. She's crazy. She's bipolar. You know, there's about a million excuses, but they all serve the same purpose, which is 
to try to get away from what he has done to her. It's that victim blaming. Yeah. And sometimes a victim will use those same excuses for the offender's behavior to justify. And even when law enforcement gets there, well, he's drunk or he was this Mm -hmm. or he was that because they might not have been the one that called and someone else called and they'll downplay their behavior. Even if it's not an excuse for the behavior, oftentimes the victim believes that to be the case. If they will just stop using, if they will just go back on their meds, this problem will go away. And unfortunately, what we know from case after case after case and all of this research is that's not true. Both of these issues really have to be prioritized if you have co-occurring issues. Mm -hmm. So do you have any words of wisdom for a first responder who may be responding to multiple incidents with that same victim? Yeah, I think that this is something that we know is happening. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of officers who have been on the job for a couple weeks have um, possibly responded to the same house uh, a couple of times, especially the longer it goes on. And so what we really want to emphasize is that this is part of domestic violence, is the dynamic of victims navigating this really intricate, tangled web of dynamics of domestic violence and abusive behaviors that have been created to keep the victim dependent or reliant on their abuser. And so oftentimes it's not as easy as making a referral to a domestic violence victim and then that that victim is able to safely escape and leave that relationship. It takes a lot of time to get ready to do that and to feel prepared to do that and sometimes rebuild a life where you can do that. And so I think on average, victims of domestic violence leave seven times before they're able to safely be independent and away from that abuse. And so some words of wisdom is that it's it's part of it. It's easy to get frustrated. I think a lot of advocates get frustrated Mm -hmm. by that dynamic because you want that person to leave. You want them to be safe. You want the best for them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And just to know that each time you respond, you're helping them get there. You're helping them to get one step closer by providing them with a referral, by assuring them that this isn't their fault, by reminding them that you care about their safety and you want them to seek help. Those can be really powerful messages that an officer can send to a victim of domestic violence that can help them safely navigate and leaving and believe that they can leave. And when you say referrals, I know that's going to be different all across the state because, you know, each county is different with the different resources. But can you give an example of some type of referrals that law enforcement could make? Yeah. So we know in terms of the cases that we've looked at, even from fatality review, the people that are most in contact with victims and perpetrators are law enforcement, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to see more people, more officers responding to a call out than you are going to see prosecutors, for example, because they're further down the line, right? Same thing with advocates. We saw one of the lowest rates of referral or connection to these cases that ended in death was advocates. And so what that really means is those victims that ended up being killed, I think it was only 18% or so of them were ever in touch with an advocate, which really means they were never connected with safety planning, advocacy resources, Mm -hmm. things that we know are supportive of their safety. So even though we recognize it is not, you know, this sort of duties as determined, right? We all have these in our jobs. Law enforcement, they're not expected to be experts in safety planning, but they might be the only person who ever has the ability to share that information with the victim. So at minimum, we're talking about giving them the the statewide hotline for domestic violence, Mm -hmm. which is 1-800-33-HAVEN. And that's staffed 24 hours a day in English and Spanish. Um, So we want to make sure at a minimum you're connecting the victim to that so that they can do some follow-up. And that actually will route the call to their local community where they're calling from. 
yeah, so it's a good resource 24 hours a day, right? And that's how they can access a shelter. So if you are law enforcement in the, your jurisdiction, you know, we don't have a shelter. Yeah. If they call that number, they might be able to get in one. In yeah. So there is a shelter that covers every area of Georgia. I think that's important to remember that there is a certified agency that covers everywhere in our state. We don't necessarily have one per county, mm -hmm. but all the shelters in some regard work together. But on that subject, I think it's important to say not every victim is going to go to shelter. True. There are some victims that law enforcement is going to respond to, and those victims are never going to leave the relationship. And they're certainly not thinking they need shelter, especially when we're talking about, you know, not all these cases have visible injuries, right? They're not being mm -hmm. physically assaulted necessarily. And because of that, the victim may not identify that they are quote unquote, worthy of even getting into a shelter. Yeah. So I think reminding victims that you come in contact with that, that there are more services available than shelter is yeah. vital. Even how we refer in terms of language to these, you know, yes. to our domestic violence programs, if you call them battered women's shelters, which most officers do, I think, that's how we have historically worked, mm -hmm. you know, talked about this. Battered women's shelter implies that you have to be battered, it's and that's not true. And there's a stigma associated yeah, just but with the term. Absolutely. But also, you don't have to be physically assaulted to qualify yeah. for services, right? And it also implies you have to be a woman, and that also is not true. Right. Yes. So even just referring, you know, thinking about how we use the language around this, call them domestic violence programs. Mm -hmm. And something else that um, officers can do is know what their program is locally and make that warm referral to a victim. You know, I know... Jenny over here at the commission, why don't we call Jenny? Rather than just saying, here's the hotline, see you later, good luck to you, bye. And if they don't know what resources are available in their area, they can call your office or they could probably call their local DA's office. They could tell them. And they can they call the domestic advocate. violence hotline themselves oh, okay. and they will get connected to somebody. Yeah. That's great. And are there yeah. any things that you can download that you can print off, like an officer could print off or the agency could print off that could... They Keep can hand handy. out. Yeah, that's a great idea. So a lot of the agencies themselves will provide if law enforcement just asks. All they got to do is know I'm the connection. I'm the person that wants to come get these. And the agency will be happy to provide that res resource and information material for them. A lot of the agencies have pamphlets or palm cards or different things that say their contact information mm -hmm. and the services that they offer that they will provide to officers so that they can hand that out on scene. Which would probably be a good idea for 911 That's centers to have point. it as well. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Not in lieu of dispatching the call, right. but no, just to go ahead and give them the information when they're talking to them yeah. while the officer is yeah. on yeah. the way there. Right. And they can just provide that resource. Absolutely. It's a great idea. Because there wouldn't be any liability with just giving a resource. That's not an issue. Right. So earlier we were talking about how the victims actually will defend their abusers and maybe give reasons as to, you know, maybe he was drunk. That's why he did it. Why is it that you find that they're defending their abuser? Again, this can be one of the most sort of complicated and, and frustrating parts of interacting and, and helping victims of domestic violence is the behavior of defending the abuser. Right, and it's very unique to family violence cases and dynamics because when we see stranger on stranger crimes, this type of defending what happened to you, violence that's occurred against you, we don't we don't see that. So right. it is very unique and frustrating. And so what we know is that there's a lot of reasons for a victim to behave in that way, and a lot of it has to do with the ongoing psychological abuse that they have right. experienced for months, years, decades, just depending on this relationship. 
and part of the abuse, uh, part of what the behaviors of abusers is, is that they make the victim believe that the abuse is her fault. That if she hadn't done X, Y, Z, then the abuse wouldn't have happened. Victims are internalizing all of that and believing that this is their fault. Yeah. And so when officers show up on the scene and a victim is, is defending what's happened or, you know, he was just drunk or, you know, this usually doesn't happen or whatever we see, right? It's, it's frustrating because, again, we want those victims to be safe. We want them to escape this. We want them to see what's happening to them is wrong. And I think part of understanding dynamics, the dynamics of domestic violence is understanding um, and having compassion around why they might be behaving that way. One of the reasons victims call law enforcement is to have the abuse stop, is for that immediate stop of the abuse. And typically when law enforcement arrives on scene, it's worked, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's a, a strategy around calling law enforcement is not always that they want the abuser arrested but they want the abuse to stop. And so how they sound on the phone when they call 911 and then how they're acting once officers arrived can be really different. And a lot of times that's because the reality of calling law enforcement and having an officer on scene and the possibility of an abuser being arrested, there's a lot of consequences that victims have to face in the Mm -hmm. aftermath of that. Uh, We talked about the dynamics of, of abuse earlier around how part of it is economic abuse, part of it is isolation. And what happens with that is that the reality could be if an abuser goes to jail is that a victim might lose her house or her car mm-hmm. or her job or she's faced with un- child care. What's going to happen here? And so those can be really frightening things to try to figure out in the immediate aftermath of an officer showing up on scene. I mean, more commonly, yes, she may have those aspects in her life, but he will likely have been the primary breadwinner, right? She will have been isolated. She won't be allowed to work or her work will have been sabotaged. So now he's in jail. He's going to lose his job. It's like they have a house of cards, right? And everything's going to fall down. He's kind of using that as a way to keep a grip on her by making her feel like she has to rely on Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what we see abusers do is that they eliminate social supports for the victim. Their goal is to maintain control over them. And so making it tough for them to maintain relationships with friends or family or even if it's not so direct as like saying you're not allowed to do that, making it so after they go to a family gathering, the victim comes home and then they have a huge blow up because your family hates me. I know you've been telling them all these things and you've been lying to them and I don't want to go there anymore. Well, to keep the peace, eventually she will say, let's just stop going there. Right. So even she may have a role in it, but it's all in response to sort of those controlling behaviors that we see from batterers or perpetrators. The other thing I want to touch on real quick too, Jenny brought up, you know, what what it looks like when law enforcement responds. Oftentimes you're also going to see a victim publicly like if the perpetrator is still there, you may see that victim defending them because they want the abuser to know right then that I'm still aligned with you. Because it's a danger to them. He's going to get out of jail. It's only in those most extreme circumstances that he's not out within three days, right? And where is he going to go? In all likelihood, he may be back in contact with her. So she needs to, the last thing he sees is her, I'm with you. And so you see victims doing that as well. So that's just something officers need to be aware of. When you do see that, as frustrating as it can seem, it's actually an indicator that you've made the right call, right? That this is the person that is mm-hmm. the perpetrator and this is the person that's the victim. Well, and I noted from some of the calls that I used to handle that when they go to jail and they get out, there's usually a no contact order that's in the bond. 
But a lot of times that's not enforced by law enforcement Mm -hmm. and the victim doesn't call or if the victim does call, the first responder on the scene doesn't know that there's a no contact order. They haven't done their research. So one of the things that they could do is look at the call history when they're responding to the call or get dispatched to pull that up or look at the names if they do arrest him, look in their system for incident reports and see what has escalated to that point. Because I think that's one of the things that when it goes to court for first appearance, or it might not, but just to know in the bond conditions that this is what happened on the scene. And so putting that in the incident report, I think will make a big difference to explain what was going on, how many times they've been out there and document that there because it might be a different judge. And they just need to understand that these no contact orders are not being enforced. That's what I saw a lot when I was in patrol. Yeah, I mean, we know that there is an enforcement issue with some of these things. That should be a number one priority. If we want to keep victims safe and hold offenders accountable for their behavior, we have the paper has to be worth what it's written on. Right. And so what we found and what the research all shows is that swift action in terms of accountability is vital to make those changes. So. If he has gotten out before, if, you know, a lot, of these, a lot of these people have been arrested multiple times for very mm-hmm. similar incidents about against this or other victims. And they learn time and time again, they get better at this, right? So if nothing's going to happen to me, I can continue to get away with it. Mm-hmm. So we have to change that. We really do have to act on it. And I would say, you know, in terms of no contact orders, it can even be confusing. Sometimes the victim, it will be framed as if the victim is okay with all of the contact, right? Yes. I'll just say it doesn't matter whether that's the case or not. The The order is not against the victim. The victim can think whatever they want about this. They can be okay. They can desperately want contact. If law enforcement is in contact with someone and there is an order that says that they cannot have contact, that needs to be immediately enforced. And that person needs to go to jail for violation of an order. Yes. Right. And so that kind of goes into our next question about stalking. Because do we see that a lot in domestic violence cases? We see a ton of stalking, and really it's an issue that we are still learning about. It's not something that we typically have had a good handle on what it really looks like. I think when you talk about stalking, people sort of picture the guy lurking in the shadows, Mm -hmm. right, or hiding in the bushes. And less and less is that what we really see stalking look like. So in terms of how often it's happening, because I know that's something you asked, it's it's a tough question to answer because it's not documented. It's not documented in the way that other types of domestic violence are. So, you know, when officers fill out their incident reports, stalking is not listed as a crime type on the UCR report. So when we try to pull data about this type of abuse, we can't because we it's either listed as other or the box isn't checked and another one is, right? And do you um, also think that that might be because the victim doesn't recognize that they're being stalked as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's definitely an issue, too. I mean, just as we in the public don't fully understand Mm -hmm. what stalking looks like, victims don't either because stalking falls in line with so many other abusive actions that they're already experiencing. And a lot of stalking behaviors, they become stalking sort of day to day, right? So you may think things are moving along just fine. You might be annoyed by constant contacts or phone calls or something like that. But then the next day you might be afraid of them. And that's when it becomes stalking. Before that, it's just considered harassment. In these cases, people are in and out of their relationships often. We've already Mm -hmm. talked about that. So when you're in various states of separation and togetherness, that becomes even more unclear, right? Where, Where do you draw that line in terms of when does this become stalking? 
And so you see victims sort of processing that on their own and they don't make the call, right? Mm -hmm. Stalking is very underreported by victims. Only about half of victims that experience stalking ever make a call at all. It may even be less than that. Well, and I think that the more often stalking that you would see would be social media or texting or the phone because we're so connected to phones and everyone has a cell phone these days. And it's that constant wanting to know where they're at and keeping tabs and constant, who are you talking to? I, that's what I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. We most see common form of it would be. It is, and it is. It is the most common form is harassing phone calls or, or messages of mm-hmm. some variety. Number one across the nation, that's what we see. And use of technology in our society today is extremely prevalent in terms of stalking and harassment and all of these forms of And you can track abuse. them. You can have Find My Friends or you can have that Absolutely. Life 360 app and you can track where they're at constantly. Yeah, so many things. I mean, with technology, all the way from just constant text messaging mm-hmm. to use of spyware, spoofing apps, things of this nature that can really make it difficult to investigate Mm -hmm. the crime of stalking. You know, we're talking about apps and things that are overseas or different things to try to track down that evidence can be complicated. But it it works, right? Abusers know that they can use it. I do want to say in terms of the rate of stalking, well, you know, the national data, we've kind of pulled together our numbers from that because even though we aren't able to get direct numbers from law enforcement reports as things currently sit, The national numbers show 4% of women and 2% of men are stalked each year in our country. And so when we boil that down to what it looks like for Georgia, roughly 312,000 Georgians are stalked each year. And so that's a huge number of people. And I'm not crazy with numbers. So to try to figure out what that looked like, I did the math on it. And it turns out that's filling Phillips Arena in Atlanta 15 times every single year with just people that have been stalked Mm. in our state. So it's a huge problem. It's not something that I think we totally understand. That would be yet. a good infographic. Yeah, 15 Just times. Visual. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, kind of a lot of us have been there before. So we can picture what that looks mm-hmm. like and just how many people that really is that are being stalked each year. And sort of when you tie it into some of the things we're already saying, like they don't fully understand that they even are being stalked. It just adds to this problem of us, you know, how do we respond to this issue? But is it against the law in Georgia? Stalking is against the law in Georgia. We cover stalking under Code Section 16590. And basically, I'll just acknowledge it is kind of a convoluted code section. So when I talk about it, I like to talk about it sort of in five basic elements. We have to have a pattern of activity, and it has to be in a place other than where the stalker resides. It has to be conduct of an intimidating and harassing nature without the victim's consent, and it must place the victim in reasonable fear. Fear being an element I talked about sort of Mm -hmm. varying where we're looking at from the harassing to the stalking. And we also cover stalking under the aggravated stalking statute, which is 16591. And the key there is it covers most of the same things, but it's in violation of a judge's order. So I think we hear that word aggravated and we immediately go to, it just has to be really, really bad, right? I mean, I, I will acknowledge I thought that for a long time. That's not the case. Any contact in violation of a judge's order is considered aggravated stalking. Mm -hmm. So apply that to what I was saying earlier about that violation of the order. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have aggravated stalking. And so we, I think we kind of talked about some of the behaviors. Are there any that we didn't say that you think are important for law enforcement to know about? Yeah. So I think when we talk about it, primarily we talk about grouping stalking behaviors into one of four, one or more really of four categories. We talk about surveillance. 
which that does qualify as the guy mm-hmm. in the shadows, right? See on TV. Yeah, but more commonly we talk about people that are following the victim or showing up where they are, even like shopping in the same grocery store because they know that's part of their routine, right? Things like that, use of tracking software, which you already mentioned, proxy stalking, and it, that means using a third party, asking, mm-hmm. it can even be asking the children about where mom was, you know, or using little tracking apps on the children's watches or things like that. These are all, or find my iPhone on the child's phone, because if the child's not with dad and they're separated and he's stalking her, child's probably with mom. Yeah. Right. So that's another way that they can find it. So the other thing, so we got surveillance, life invasion, that's going to be your unwanted contacts, calls, texts, emails, at home, work, other places, phone calls, property invasion, humiliating the victim in public even as invading sort of their privacy in life, harassing their friends and family. That's another really common mm-hmm. tactic because they're making life difficult for other people. The victim's just going to give up, right, and want to go mm-hmm. back to them. Stalkers always think that next contact is going to be the one that makes the difference, right? Their, their effort is to get the victim to come back to them. Intimidation, we know stalkers use. They'll make threats. They'll damage property. They'll force confrontations with the victim or other people. They'll threaten to harm themselves even sometimes. And then interference with the victim's life through sabotage or attack. So we'll see them show up or repeatedly call work so they can't keep their job, right? try to ruin their reputation or interfere with child custody. A lot of these different things, and even included in that includes physical or sexual assault, because nothing is going to interfere or sabotage the victim's life quite like those two things, right? And so on that note, strangulation, is that involved in family violence and domestic violence? Yeah, we see strangulation as one of the most severe forms of abuse that, that an abuser can do to a victim of domestic violence and also highly correlates with an increased risk of lethal violence happening in the relationship. What we know is that oftentimes strangulation isn't used to kill a victim of domestic violence. It is used to send the message that I can kill you Mm -hmm. and that your life is literally in my hands. So how this plays out is that the likelihood of becoming a homicide victim increases sevenfold for women who have been strangled by their partner. And what we find is that for abusers who have strangled their partners previously, they're not using strangulation to kill their partner. They follow up using the strangulation against their victim and later kill her with a firearm. Are you saying that the strangulation is a progression or is the strangulation from the beginning or you see that it's closer to when they're going to use the firearm? Yeah, we see strangulation. Typically, all forms of physical violence aren't happening at the beginning of a domestic violence relationship. So it is part of this escalation pattern of abuse. And so we see strangulation definitely happening more towards the end as that sort of mechanism, that ultimate form of power and control. And some of those other dynamics that they may have been using for power and control are no longer achieving the results that they are intended Mm -hmm. to achieve. And we previously met with Sarah Peterson with the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. And we have a strangulation podcast where we met with her, but I'm glad that you're bringing that up because it is important for family violence and domestic violence. Did you have something you wanted to say? Well, I was just going to say, I think when I was learning about strangulation, and I'm sure Sarah covered this, I think we think it's going to be this crazy scene of like super violence and and it doesn't always look like that. I mean, a lot of victims will say like, I was just pushed back by my neck or pushed back against the wall using the arm, sort of describe it in a way or choked even that minimizes what it really is. Mm -hmm. 
And if you give your neighbor a firm handshake, that that's 10 pounds of pressure in the average firm handshake. And it only takes four pounds of pressure to strangle somebody and they could be dead within minutes. So it's not it's not this thing that I think we see on TV. Yeah, that's uh, the build up. Mm -hmm. And then it's a long drawn out thing. It really doesn't take that long to kill someone. No, it doesn't take that long at all, which is why investigating these types of incidents is so important. And documenting. For and documentation, exactly. So I know Sarah covered all of that mm -hmm. in, the, in the podcast that you did with her earlier. I also want to make sure we plug the one-hour training yes. on investigating incidents of strangulation assault on Gypstick's training site, which goes through the steps of investigation and gives some extra tips on what to look for and questions to ask. It can help really enhance documentation of yes. that type of crime. And we and that course is offered online, and we also have Stop the Stalker and a Family Violence course that are offered online with Gypstick. Thanks for listening to Gypstick Between the Lines. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, email us at learn at gpstc.org.